Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, how do you filter content in an age of abundance? So this is a little bit like we're expanding out that age-old canard of like there's a million channels but nothing to watch, right? We're talking about how there's an abundance of media and options and choices out there, many of which are good, but it's, I think people are experiencing increasing frustration, I know I am, with uh, trying to sort out which are the ones they actually want to spend their time with. Right. Well, it's a world where we have more and more data and more and more options, and we still have the same limited attention. We still have the same two eyes, the same brain, but there's more stuff to look at. So it's a problem that keeps getting worse, really. I mean, every day there's new books being written and new movies being made and new activities being invented, and you just can't possibly do them all. So. Right, right. There is, as a specific example, there's that um, former film producer, Ted Hope, who runs a blog, uh, Hope for Film, and he uh, said on it that he had calculated just his existing list of wanted-to-watch films, uh, how many hours they would take, and they would require him to live for another like 250 years, and that's assuming no new films that he wanted to see were made in the intervening 250 years. Exactly. <laughs> and that was just like one example of how impossible it now is. It's literally impossible for one human with the lifespan that we currently enjoy to take in all the media and entertainment, let's say, that you would even uh, want to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a fundamental element of our current situation is that we can now record things uh, at, to great detail. We can keep them pretty indefinitely. We're not really losing any stuff. So the, the backlog keeps getting bigger and bigger. And attention, again, becomes really valuable because that's what's limited, right? There's a lot of stuff to look at, not a lot of time to look at it. And that's why I think, you know, the most, some of the most successful businesses that we see today, companies like Google, really are, are mm -hmm. profiting off of the fact that there's a lot of stuff out there and, you know, you need to find the stuff that you want, Right. And because right. you only, you know, have so much time in your day or in your life. So this need for curation is, doesn't seem like it's going to go away. And we're going to talk about that today. Like, are there better ways to curate than we're doing now? Um, what's working? What isn't working? What are some of the issues surrounding curation? Uh, and I thought maybe a place to start would be to talk about some of the major methods for filtering content that people have always used. I mean, these predate computers. Right. Okay. So people have always sought out new stuff. How did they do it? How did they do it? Right. And, and these, that's a good question yeah. to start with. Okay. So we've come up with a couple categories, right? Uh, so the first category is social filtering, right? Right. And that's the, you know, tell a friend thing. That's like your right. word of mouth. We call it sometimes word right? of mouth. It's like There's your a lot friends of it, yeah. or people in your social circle recommend something. You find out about it. Right. And that's always worked. And obviously computers harness that, which we'll talk more about later. Right. But that, that predates computers, of course. The other one is, is research. So if you, maybe you don't have any friends that are into what you're into, but if you know what you want to learn about, uh, you can dive into that. And whether, you know, you're using very old traditional methods, like say reading books that mention the names of other books that you then look up in a library or whether using the more modern version of this, which would be following links all over the web, you can do quite a lot with research if you're willing to put the time in. Right, right. Like as a young nerdy kid, I used to spend a lot of time reading uh, 
the liners of CDs, and sometimes that would work. You'd find something you'd like that you wouldn't have necessarily heard about uh, through a collaboration that you uncovered through research. So-and-so worked on this project that I liked. Maybe I'll like what other things they do, right? Right, exactly. So, so we've got two categories so far. We've got uh, social filtering or social curation. We've got research as a method. A third one is using authority. And there's a lot of versions of this, but this is where you get your recommendation, not from a friend you know, not from your own research, but you get it from some authority figure, which could be a reviewer, right. uh, is a classic example that's of this. That's like the most obvious example, is a, is a reviewer, like, say, at a big newspaper that's culturally revered. Right, you read the, right. the film review column, and the reviewer gives five stars to this movie, and so you're going to trust them and go see it. Right. Another version of it might be, you know, a real official institution, like a museum, that's saying, hey, right. this artist is worth your time, we're going to devote an entire room to him, you right, know? Right, And that's, again, got that sort of authority, that stamp of approval mm-hmm. uh, that's not just coming from a friend. Uh, I would sort of tentatively file advertising under this. We talk, uh, Right, well, we had this conversation earlier. Advertising is similar, but it's a purchased authority, right? I mean, instead of, instead of you trusting the source in advertising, like we we're talking about with a museum or a gallery or a reviewer or something like that, it's, uh, they purchase the right to put their message in your face one way or another, it still comes to you from outside of your friend group and outside of your own interests. So in that sense, it is still an external authority. You know what? I changed my mind. Yeah, this should but, be its own category, advertising, because it's direct. Usually advertising is direct coming from the creator of the thing to you, whereas authority implies it's routing through a, through a third party, right? Right. Well, and, and advertisement often appeals to authority. Like, uh, I think that term actually comes from descriptions of advertising sure three out of five doctors right three out of five doctors Actually, that's is, pretty low is, is, that you would you would say it's four out of five usually uh, okay well <laughs> however many out of yeah. five doctors more than uh, half hopefully. like the product that we're advertising that sort of thing is of course uh an attempt by advertising to feel like it's coming from authority and uh movie re- movie reviewers will be quoted in movie trailers sure. on you know that sort of thing so it um that technique is used by advertising but i think yeah it, it fundamentally changes it that advertising is direct speech from a person who's paying for the privilege to a person who's uh, receiving the speech. So we'll call that yeah. a, its own category. So we've got social, that's getting recommendations from friends. We've got research, that's uh, doing the work yourself to try to find something in your area of interest. We've got authority, that's relying on a reviewer or an institution or a magazine or something official. And then we've got you know direct from the creators of the product in the form of advertising. Right. And these are all ways that we find out about stuff and... Uh, we receive recommendations. Yeah, right? that's what this basically and, is, and is sort out the the things that we want from the from the massive information that just keeps getting bigger and bigger every day. Right now, I mean, the thing to bring this you know up to the present and eventually to the future, we of course now we have to talk about computers, right? And and recommendation algorithms are are a big thing that a lot of sites use now. Right, automating recommendations been like a big challenge for now, some time for at least fifteen years. Right, because you have companies like Amazon yep. that are sitting on a huge archive of stuff that people need to, you know, find the needle in the haystack, the thing that they're going to spend their money on. And Amazon has a vested interest in helping people find that needle. Yeah. And, you know, they've well, tried they also to... Have yeah. all this data, right? Right. Of things people have bought in the past. So they have a lot of potential data to work with to try to come up with a way to, to recommend this stuff. And... uh Amazon's most successful intervention, I think, has been the one where they uh, recommend, you know, uh, other users who looked at this item also looked at or also bought. 
right? Which is kind of like leveraging the social thing. I guess they may not be people that you know, though, but it's... Uh, right, well, they're leveraging their own data set to find people who are in some algorithmically identifiable way sort of like you, yeah. exposing you to those people's decisions. Well, maybe this is its own category because it seems like a lot of these recommendation algorithms operate on the principle of similarity. So, right. like, this is similar to other things you've liked by these metrics, you know, whether it's like they've identified certain categories that your previous purchases or like if it's Netflix, things that you've viewed before uh, and then they, you know, find in the Venn diagram, this overlaps with these other things that we okay, should show yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. So like the best example of this is Netflix, right? It's right. that because you watched X, we're going to show you all these things that are like it. You know, if you watch Breaking Bad, we'll show you a bunch of uh, prestige TV. If you watch uh, a cop show, we'll show you a bunch of other cop shows. That's right, and I think using other users is this is just a, maybe a slightly more advanced version of that where they're saying, here's how you're similar to another user. Therefore, maybe we can share some of what the other user enjoyed with you. So it's just trying to match similarities right. either between products or between users. Right, and, and Last.fm does that too, right? They have the, the user matching. Last.fm does it through users as opposed to something like, say, Pandora, which does it through actual like elements of the thing itself, right? Right, a, a categorization scheme of some kind. Right, so yeah. those seem to be the two major ways of doing this, right. but they're both kind of the same thing. They're both like saying... They're both just approaches to find similarity. Yeah, so similarity, I think, actually might be a fifth category. That's the category, right. And then right. computers make that possible because they have right. all the data. Right, and recommending similar things is, I think, where all of the, like, agita in society about computers doing the recommending comes from, isn't it? Well, some of the creepiness, because it's like, oh, it reminds you how much it knows about you, because you're mm -hmm. like, why is it recommending this to me? And then you're like, oh, right, two years ago, I watched that one war documentary. So now it's like showing me all these war documentaries and you kind of put that together and you're like, gosh, they like are keeping track of everything, aren't they? Right. So, right. It, so it creates kind of some of the creepiness factor. Absolutely. But then it also, I think, uh, you know, I mean, there have been various pundits and commentators that have been concerned about the fact that if you are constantly shown, I mean, this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but like, we might as well talk about it now. One of the issues around curation that I want to discuss is like the ratio of you finding stuff that you're familiar and comfortable with because it's like things you've enjoyed in the past right versus encountering new and or challenging stuff right that you maybe normally wouldn't expose yourself to and i think a threat of that type of sort of similarity matching method is that you only see more of the stuff you like and you don't really expand your horizons potentially i mean that's a fear well, if it works right i think that's the fear and i definitely heard that articulated that you can get caught in a kind of reinforcing echo chamber sort of thing where you only see and hear things you agree with or know about or like and nothing challenges you and you don't get outside of of your perspective politics what, is where people really get concerned about this, this right? gets it's really worrisome yeah. when you're talking about yeah like super polarized uh, mainstream politics or like news like how you consume your news if right. you always consume your news because you and it knows what politics you like and it's always serving you news that matches your existing politics then right. you're not really perhaps opening your eyes to the other sides of various arguments right well yeah and that if you take into consideration the kinds of cognitive biases we expect most people have that could really lead you down a very dark self-reinforcing uh, uh, radicalization road, you know? Right. So I could see how some people would worry about that. Um, but I guess what the reason I don't personally worry that much about that or what I would question about that is how successful really are these algorithms at A, identifying what's similar 
and B, identifying what's important about the similarities. Because I find uh, in, most, in most cases with the Netflix type, because you watched uh, algorithms, the things that they show me are superficially similar to the things that I liked. And they tend not to be other things that I would actually like. I find that they don't work well for me. Uh, and At and least at the moment. One of the ways they often fail for me is that uh, unless you really train these recommendation algorithms, like they don't always have the full record. I mean, they have a lot of data, but they don't always have the full record of all the things that you've seen. So I right. find I'm constantly recommended things that I've already seen. And I'm like, yeah, I would like that. I liked that when I saw it two years ago. Right. Um, thank you for the tip. You know, it's right, like, it's right. Like, and on Netflix, like where, cause they have a limited catalog and we're sort of film nerds and we've seen a lot of things. Uh, I mean, Netflix is a place where that happens, but I find that happens on Amazon too. Yeah, yeah. I find that happens to me a lot, particularly on Netflix where like, yeah, half the things they're recommending I've already seen or more. And I'm too lazy to go through and rate every single one of them. So they don't know that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's true. That's a reason why, but I also think there's just a lot of, these, particularly the categorization-based uh, similarity um, algorithms, they really, I think, they miss a lot of what's deeply similar about things, um, particularly about artistic things, and they tend to em overemphasize what's surface similar, like these two things are in the same genre or contain certain, you know, uh, types of the same yeah, aesthetic. Easily measurable metrics, right. like which may or may not be appropriate. Like, again, if you want to go to Pandora, I mean, they're going to, like, like the instruments that are included and that's going to like get you or like, what is it major or minor? Like they have certain things, but like that may not get at the heart of what you liked about X music. Right. Exactly. Um, and so like those, that sort of superficial level is part of the problem. And also I think like for somebody that with like my, my personality is often that I want to be challenged or see new things. And so, right. That's it's, almost what I'm looking for by definition. Right, it's not way. modeling that, uh, that part of my personality which right. i assume is not that unique i mean i assume other people want to be exposed to new things oh yeah i think everybody has a different tolerance for uh i don't know what the best term for this is but you know uh for being challenged or for for novelty and uh you and i, I think have a high tolerance for it and it seems like these algorithms should be able to gauge that even if it's just purely random the recommendations that come in to provide novelty that seems like it would actually work like it's basically having a randomness amount that you could adjust right. these things uh, to your taste. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would want a high level of randomness because to me, that's better than seeing, you know, oh, I watched one movie with cheerleaders in it. And now I'm seeing five different movies with cheerleaders in them that are all going to be yeah. worse versions of the thing I just watched. Every once in a while, just show me something that's highly rated, but that's not in my comfort zone and, and right. maybe or that's low rated, but high rated by people like me. Right. Which is where that third method comes in. Sure. Because I may want something that's not very popular. I might want something that's just what I like. Right. Yeah. Now, if we go over this list of things, social research, authority ads, and now similarity, one of the ones that I feel like is, I mean, now recommendation algorithms, they, they leverage the similarity the most, Right. Right, and, and they, that's and, maybe a flaw in and, them. And currently. some of them, uh, like, leverage the social. Like, I mean, it, Facebook is doing this right. to Facebook a great degree. Facebook and Twitter are basically attempts at, at this, and Facebook does it pretty much as its main business now. It's like a social recommendation engine, basically, right? But I, I think there's room, and we talked about this before, that I think there is room to leverage authority in some new creative ways that haven't been done yet, I, I suspect. Now, I mean, the best example I can think of that does this now is Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes right. is a site 
that leverages authority combined with an algorithm to try to help you find the best stuff out there. Right. Um, so, you know, they take all these top-notch reviewers and some also the lower-tier ones, which they weight lower, I think, in the average, and they, you know, combine that all into one score. What I don't... I and think, then they compare that score yeah. to a user score, and that's really useful. I think that's the coolest thing about Rotten Tomatoes, is I like to look at the two different scores, and I'll be interested in anything that's lopsided as well as anything that's doubly high. It's true. It's fascinating when you're like, <laughs> like the users like it and the critics don't like it. It makes you think maybe it's good and vice versa makes you think it's good too. Sometimes right. like, it makes you think maybe it's fun, but not smart. You know, if the users like it, but the critics don't, or maybe it's challenging, like smart, but too challenging. Yeah. If the critics like it and, and both of those things are potentially interesting to me because I, I like both. Well, of they're those useful things. information to like get yeah. a sense of what this is going to be. What the movie is going to be like. Yeah. Sure. So that, that is a really cool feature, mm -hmm. but I think, None of them actually, or, or that site in particular, doesn't, to me, capture what, or maybe there's features of that site that I haven't delved into, but uh, the best way to use a reviewer, I find, is to find a reviewer that is like you, right. that shares your taste, right? Um, and, or even actually, in some cases, you can find a reviewer that differs from you in certain key ways, but if you know the ways that they differ from you, you know when to disregard their opinion. Right. Basically, having a really sort of intimate knowledge of a reviewer's taste and using that, that seems, to, I think that's the most efficient way probably to find new stuff that you like. And, uh, you know, at various times in my life, I've had reviewers like that, or sometimes even just like an amateur blogger or something that I'm like, I know what this person's about. And right. like, if they like it, I'm probably going to like it. Right now, it's actually like a really challenging time for reviewers to find audience, I think. But their utility, I think, remains there. So I totally agree with you that a better system that could match people to reviewers, not based on their geography, which isn't that important anymore. Well, this is getting into the idea. So let's talk about this, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, I think there's room here to yeah. like make an algorithm that facilitates, like you said, matching reviewers to people that share tastes with those reviewers. Right. And these could be big time reviewers or they could be more amateur reviewers. Uh, but if the system could figure out the, the people there are the reviewers within the community that share your tastes, right? But they're still reviewers. They're not just other users. I mean, I know that like these other sites try to match you to other users that have your taste, but I think it's different to match yourself to a reviewer. A reviewer is somebody who is taking on an additional responsibility, right? The responsibility of doing the research, right? Of right. going out there and looking for you because they enjoy doing it and because they can like distill opinions about that that are useful right. and matching those kinds of sort of uh, power reviewer users to the sort of everyday user that just wants to find the good stuff. Maybe right. even compensating those reviewers in some small fashion. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be advantageous if you could compensate them because like we were talking about, they're increasingly, it's an amateur pursuit in terms of, you know, newspapers, which used to pay reviewers, uh, can't afford to do it anymore. So it's interesting to me to think about this as something that's like, yeah, halfway between like what Yelp does, where they sort of elevate and uh, gamify their system to encourage their power users to do more reviews. But right. ultimately, it's an amateur pursuit. You know, nobody gets paid. And, and I'm glad you brought up Yelp, by the way, because we should come back to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's like the Yelp strategy. Um, and that, you know, that last FM strategy, which we talked about, where they match you to other similar users. But again, that's all still peer to peer. Uh, if you could combine that with um, something like what Rotten Tomatoes does, where there's a section of the site that you need to have some authority to be a part of, you know, that's where you could potentially pay people for their work or something. 
if they or you pay them for the number of uh, people they get matched with or something like that, you know, tie it to their merit in some way. Right. Um, and just to be clear, like the way that would work, right, is like you'd be like you'd answer some questions or you, about like the we'll just stick with film for the time being, like about like sure. films you like. Sure. And then it would identify those people that had like a record of doing reviews, right? Like they'd have to be approved in the way that you're describing. Right. They'd have to be up to some tier and then it would match you to those. It would identify the people in the system that were most like you. But in this, within this subset of sort of elite reviewer type people. Right. And it could even alert you like, you'll agree with him 80% of the time, but not on horror movies or something. If it's, if it's good enough, right. you know, uh, it could, it could basically give you that relationship, like automate the creating of that relationship that you used to get over time by reading somebody's reviews and going to movies and making mistakes. Uh, the other thing that some system like this could do is you could voluntarily track the things that you do watch and rate them. And that would, of course, keep it, you know, get it, it would make you closer and closer, uh, better and better matched over okay, time. Over time, figure out like how well you, like that reviewer is working out for you. Right. Like they recommended X, you watched X, you hated X, and then so it downgrades that reviewer right. um, as a match for you. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that would be maybe a cool way to take these recommendation algorithms, which still feel kind of shoddy. I mean, they're clearly going to get better. But they're like they don't they don't seem that great today. I mean, I think it's still a humongous problem that tons and tons of things that I would enjoy more than whatever I'm doing right now are not getting in front of my eyes and ears um, and wallet in the case of Amazon, I suppose. Yeah, you just know that there's I know like, that this, that's the fact. And I think that's a huge problem for people in the world right now. Right. I'm sure that there's some amateur out there right now that's like in their bedroom like maybe like writing a short story or something that I would love to read and I would never, ever see it. We'll never see it. Right. And I mean, even just take this podcast, for example, like we like doing this podcast. We do the podcast. We put it out there. Some people find it and they see it, which is wonderful. I like to listen to other people's podcasts so that I can learn about how to make a better podcast for everybody. And I go out and I try to find podcasts that I'll be interested in. And I find with minimal effort, I find hundreds and hundreds of podcasts that are vaguely r related to what we're doing here i don't have anywhere near enough time to listen to all of them so i end up picking kind of at random or based on sort of bad criteria like who has the nicest looking website or something which one i'm going to try and listen to and then i you know i'm often disappointed and i haven't found that many that i love so uh but i i suspect there is i have an interest in it, so i suspect there's stuff out there i would like it's a, I think that's just one example, but there's tons of this. It's, it seems like it continues to be a big problem and uh, finding things that match our taste, not just in the superficial aspects of um, genre elements or you know instruments or tempo or something like easy to quantify like that, but in the more difficult, culturally relevant, like subjective quality levels, for example, it's, it's going to be uh, much harder. I guess it's a question as to whether it can ever be completely automated, actually, when you're dealing with such subjective things as quality. Right. Well, I think that's, a, that's one of the questions I want to talk about. So why don't we just transition into that, which is uh, the issue of, is it possible to completely replace humans in this process? Obviously, what we were just talking about was sort of a hybrid method where you leverage these sort of power users that are writing reviews or, and are doing research. Right. And you're trying to spread that around to the, to the rest of the normal users. Um, and that's sort of combining some smart algorithms with some smart people and some human intelligence. Right. Is it possible with these recommendation algorithms 
to get good enough to just eliminate the humans entirely. Um, because if it's, you know, I, I don't think we're, we're clearly not there now. Right. But I mean, as a matter of speculation, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. Um, or is it such a subjective thing? I mean, I guess you could, I mean, to the extent that it, it, it almost seems like the computer has to be at human level intelligence to fully automate this. Right. Which I'm not sure of that. I, I think that you could do it with a dumb computer if you have enough data. But I think you need a tremendous amount of data. This, you know, the point that you make that it, none of these algorithms actually know everything you watch or listen to. None of them manage to follow you everywhere. Right. Uh, and I think a, a, a combined algorithm that maybe didn't even see boundaries between music and movies and video games and text and rather just saw boundaries between like, what are you spending your time on versus not? Um, and maybe had full surveillance access to your life, let's say, um, through a combination of devices and sensors, I think could be dumb and could, and of course, we'd have to have that data for everyone else. Uh, and it could, I think, do a pretty good job of, of just using the strategies we talked about, like user matching and data mining with, with all that data, I think. So you're, you're probably fun. right. So the bottleneck is just the information that they lack about us, which includes right. our personality, includes like how much challenge and novelty can I tolerate? In- right, but you might be able to surmise that from a deep enough de- data set True. of other things. Yeah, about I guess it. I agree with that. So I think, yeah, you could replace the humans in the process if you can design a service that will be able to gather all this information. Which, but you, you need know, essentially like, a, I mean, you need something pretty close to a total surveillance data set i mean this, you need even for better like a than, while of time better than the data set that google has i think yeah which is like probably of all the services that i can think of that i use they probably have the most information about me but i still am not convinced that they would know enough about my consumption habits in enough different areas they don't. i mean they try to do it uh, google now is like google's best effort to use the data it has about you to show you stuff you want to see and like once a, I'll, i check it several times a day because i'm looking at the weather and stuff in there and uh, what I'd say, you know, once out of every uh, 10 times I hit it, it shows me something I, I wouldn't have seen otherwise that I'm interested in, you know? Right. Um, more often than that, it shows me things I would have seen otherwise because I have some other method for looking at blog posts, for example, or something. Um, but I'm still interested in them. And then sometimes it shows me things I'm not interested in at all. Uh, so it's, you know, that's, I think, the best efforts that they have right now. Uh, but I could see if they get more data about us, they could potentially improve that service without, you know, killer AI. But I think if they're doomed to limited data sets, uh, then they're going to need like a very intuitive and powerful system to judge really subjective things like quality. You know, even other human beings, I often don't trust to judge subjective quality uh, for me. <laughs> Right. You know, it's a, tu- it's tough. a tough challenge, yeah. and I think uh, it's an even tougher programming challenge. And when you have so many humans online, it seems like the crowdsourced hybrid method is just a faster way to get there. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. So another issue that I wanted to talk about, uh, that because you brought up Yelp, and that right. reminds me of uh, one of the sort of 
catchphrases from Tyler Cowen's Average right. is Over book, which is, he said, Yelp for everything Yelp was for one, everything. one right. of his predictions about the future. And so, Yelp for doctors. I exactly. Think he talks about particularly. Because yeah. I want to be clear here, like we're spending a lot of time talking about movies and music, but really when I say curation, I mean, the, the, what's interesting about the future is that like this problem applies to everything. This applies to like, yeah, what doctor do you go to? What lawyer do you hire? Uh, you know, what uh, yoga instructor do you go to? Like, you know. Sure. I mean, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, uh, as things ephemeralize uh, and get inside the computer, they all become similar and take on similar qualities. And sometimes it's easy to look at something like music because it's a low bandwidth thing that went digital early. And we so fully understand how it kind of like works in the digital realm because it's been like that we've for been so able long. to see it yeah. yeah we've been able to see it happen and we can predict i think what will happen to some things that are harder to digitize furniture as is something that you go, could have ratings on. for like that seems like an obvious one yeah furniture is an interesting market huh it's so weird because uh, like i don't know like i mean yeah for furniture it's like there's some really expensive furniture stores there's like ikea that's in sort of like the more mass market furniture yeah, business there's like ikea and then everything else i mean and, i think ikea is like I mean, Target sells some stuff, you know, furniture market though. It's so huge. But you could imagine that like, you know, there could be with some of these newer technologies, just honestly, just having like cheaper transportation, cheaper materials, and maybe eventually even 3d printing. That's a lot further off for a big thing like a chair, but, uh, that you could have a much, uh, more diversified market for furniture designs where you would want to know what's the review of this chair, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, obviously like Yelp does this for restaurants and for business, pretty much any business for Yelp. Yeah. Yelp just requires that something be a business. I think that's their only requirement. So they, they do it for all kinds of things. And, uh, their that model is growing and that is interesting because it is opposed to this professional reviewer model, right? I mean, it's, they, they are peer to peer. They give you the they, aggregate they number that's just based on the, you know, the masses and what they think. And that is... Right. That's a pretty quick way to get to a useful number, but it's not, I don't think like, like I feel like 10 random users is never going to be worth as much as the opinion of like one person you trust. Right. But then they also feature the reviews of their most active users. They give all this, like they've gamified it really heavily. There's lots of badges and stuff. So they, they elevate these people to more visible positions on the site when they work harder on the site and have more other users appreciating what they do. So I guess that's a little so bit of that. So they do their like, own like yeah. reputation management within the site. There's sort of Yelp for the Yelpers on Yelp, if you will. Right, <laughs> um, that's true. That that causes them to to rise in the, uh, at least in their visibility. I don't know. I don't think their votes count for more because I don't think it works like that. But, uh, you know, that sort of system, I think, can challenge traditional reviewers in that you can pick out the people who have the interest and the desire to do it. They don't necessarily have the you know, education or whatever other um, requirements there are to be an elite reviewer at, say, a, a, an old newspaper or something. But um, it's not entirely clear to me that, uh, you know, motivated uh, users are worse than, say, um, you know, um, academically trained critics or something like that. It's interesting to take this, like, phrase, like, Yelp for everything really literally to and mm-hmm. be like, because they... Like Yelp, for example, will tell you this restaurant has three and a half stars, but they won't tell you this item on the restaurant, however, has four and a half stars, right? Like it's not, it's not as fine grained as it theoretically could be in a truly information rich system right? where like individual menu items could be rated and 
you know, like again, it, like there and might that be a information rating. could be automatically extracted from the reviews because if you do actually go and t take the time to read the reviews, you'll often find like, yeah, this place sucks, but the one thing that was good was X. But you got to dig for that. And people will say that, but right, there's no score of that on the page. If you had a computer trolling through those, you could um, extract those uh those values yeah or another example would be like a hair salon you know the hair salon like maybe like jamie's the only good person working at the hair salon right so he's got a higher rating than the salon in general or right i mean pick your business right right and again extending the all for everything like rating people for example what's that there's I, i'm drawing a blank on that name but there's that app that's like only designed for women that allows them to rate guys do you remember this I forget the name of this no, application. I didn't hear about this, but uh, that's I, funny. I, should we, I maybe we should pause to look this up. Okay, one one moment. So we just looked it up, and the name of the app is is Lulu. Yeah, and it's it's an app so that women can anonymously rate men. It's like, uh, so yeah. I mean, that's that's a really interesting application of ratings to individuals in a more like personal context, which again I think is like an interesting place for this to go because it's taking much more literally this idea that literally you could Yelpify almost everything in the future, um, even, you know, your personal relationships, uh, which is what I feel like that app does. Um, Whoa, yeah, that is a weird app, man. Yeah, as a guy, you can sign up for part of it, but you don't get access to the full suite of information. No, but they will tell you apparently what you're what people are saying about you they'll tell you yeah your score they just won't tell you who said it yeah yeah what that is weird <laughs> yeah yeah interesting i kind of wish i didn't know about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know and it's it's interesting that it's a gendered thing too i mean it says something about like you know gender dynamics today that this app is exists right now going one direction but not the other direction it's like yeah, obviously well, this is a need that it well, there's like plenty of ways for men to rate women, I suppose, but yeah, this is a yeah, this definitely feels like a, a strike back rather than as a like a a reserved privilege, but it's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but like, you know, I brought that up because yeah, that's like a new area for ratings that you wouldn't think of, and I think like there's probably a hundred other places where we're going to see ratings popping up in the future that you wouldn't expect to see ratings, you know? One other element of that Yelp for everything concept that you're talking about is that it uh, is something that's really bad for mediocre people, businesses, services, everything. Because a lot of things survive on information asymmetry and on people not knowing that there's a difference between them and another competitor because it's hard to tell. Well, that's the connection to the averages over theory, right? right? Of like you're hollowing out the middle because if you're the second best competitor and it's really obvious that you're the second best competitor, then... There's kind of no reason to yeah. go to you. Or the superstar effect is another way to say this, right? Superstar this effect, right. And then maybe if you're the cheapest, you can survive with bad ratings and everybody says they suck, but they're cheap or something. But it's like, it, it really seems like it will hollow things out to have reputation tested, you know... Uh, trustable information on everybody and everything that's out there. That's and it'll available. force people towards niches, right? Because if like, you know, if your grilled cheese is the only good thing on your menu and it's the only thing that's getting a higher rating, right. at what point do you- supposed to come in a grilled cheese shop. Exactly, yeah. right? You just like kind of change your focus to like, well, that's the only thing we're doing well and it's fairly obvious that we have all the data on it. So Right. Well, so yeah, and that might actually help people to specialize when they should and do better overall, waste less. Um, that's interesting. 
So anyways, another thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the thinking about these gatekeepers, right? Um, who are the people doing the curating or the companies doing the curating or the websites doing the curating as kind of a source of tyranny even like, or, or just like being a way that, you know, you're not getting access perhaps, well, you to all the information. I mean, it's sort of maybe a form of censorship. If, if the world is such that there are a few good gatekeepers that are really good at giving recommendations that most people never stray from, Right. Uh, then you possibly end up in a situation where those gatekeepers have a tremendous amount of power to set the agenda, whether that's politically or whether that's even just in terms of arts and entertainment. That's maybe a problem or a downside of this. And I think, you know, this is really nothing new. I don't want to act like this is like... A, right. A, I was just going to say yeah. our previous like media landscape uh, was this way and the solution that the society took for it was to just gently regulate the companies that were the gatekeepers like when it was the three networks for example yeah and they just said well, like on saturday mornings you gotta show educational stuff for kids and not every night at six o'clock you gotta show the news basically was the regulation otherwise you could kind of do whatever you wanted and they had some some mild censorship right you know uh, of like bad words and and sexual stuff and everything and you know that's uh you know, you can argue about it, uh, whether or any of that's necessary or whatever. I, I don't have strong opinions about it, but that's the way the society dealt with it in the past. And yeah, I could definitely see us returning to that, although I think it's more likely that we'll have a larger number of more niche gatekeepers, although it may still have the same effect. I mean, even if you have a thousand gatekeepers, um, that's still only a thousand institutions that are possibly controlling conversation, you know, around the world. Um Right. What's interesting to me, I guess, is that the problem doesn't go away, even though we have more data, right? Like, is that, because if you look at the old landscape where you are talking about, say, like, you know, a few television channels, right? there's like a real physical obstacle. Yeah, there are technical that, challenges. That's so. creating the bottleneck. Right. That's right. saying, like, you know, there's limited, you know, broadcasting ability. So there's only a few companies that are able to get their message out there. Right. And so out of necessity... Uh, there's a lot of consolidation and this curation process is in the hands of very few. What, what's interesting is that now that we have a pretty much a much more wide landscape uh, with a lot more voices is that those same problems really can exist because, you know, people end up using the same 10 websites for everything. Uh, and, you know, whether that's Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, even though there's more options available, people don't necessarily seek them out. I guess like that's something that, I mean, is apparent in today's world that mm -hmm. I don't think I would have guessed, you know, 20, right. 30 years ago. Well, yeah, there's two sides of it. There's that people are not necessarily that interested in seeking stuff out, right? I think I've heard, I forget whether it was Eric Schmidt when he was still uh, running Google or whether it was Larry Page after he took back over, but uh, somebody at the top of Google said... Uh, well, we did some research and we're pretty convinced that what the users want is for us to figure out what they want ahead of them and tell them, you know? Uh, and that, uh, I think it was a surprise to them because they were a company that started on the opposite premise that you know what you want. We're supposed to help you find it and get out of your way, right? Uh, that everything should be pull, um, right. not push on the internet. Um, and uh, it does seem that most people... 
in most of the, their time do want to have things sort of pushed on them. Uh, of course, they want things they want pushed on them, not stuff they don't want. Uh, and figuring that out is challenging and does lead to this, this thing you're talking about where there's all this stuff out there, but they're not seeking it out. But I think the other thing I wouldn't have really guessed and wouldn't have really been able to conceptualize, say, in the mid-90s when all of this was starting is just how hard it would actually get to find the vastly more needles in the vastly larger haystack, right? I mean, that's the world that it's always been needle in a haystack to find stuff you like, you right? Know? Uh, particularly if you're into obscure things like obscure artwork, it's always a challenge to find that weird outsider piece that you also get into, you know? Right. Um, but in the days of like late um, mainstream media when uh, there was like an alternative niche or whatever, um, there were fewer needles and it was a smaller haystack and you could get to the bottom of it if you were uh, willing to put some time in. Uh, now I think there's, there's so much I'm missing and so much more great stuff uh, from all these actuated uh, creators all around the world, but it's actually difficult to seek it out. It's like it's not even clear what I'd be searching for in many cases, or or how it's I'd also a source it. of stress if you stop and think about it too much. When you're like, oh man, like my list of things that I want to try or do is like so long, it's impossibly long. And, There's then, no and way. you're like, you're like, you just think about all the stuff you're never gonna get to, and you're like, oh man, like that's you know, it's it's a it's like that sort of you know decision theory stuff that says like you know how people don't like the more options. Right. I There's mean, a point at which more options become a burden for sure. I think. Some options, obviously, is probably better than none at all. But every time you make but, a choice, you're burdened with the regret of the thousands of choices you didn't make. Right. Well, we yeah. have multiple good options. That's always stressful because you're, there's opportunity cost, right? Yeah. Like, so the last thing I want to talk about is the idea of really, really good recommendation algorithms. So we're going to speculate a little bit. Right? Okay, right. About how good these can get. You know, how, Whatever method they use of the ones we've talked about, let's say they've, they're super dialed into what you want and they can put it in front of you right away. The second you purchase one thing or finish watching one thing or finish reading one thing, it's got the next thing queued up for you and it's spot on. It's exactly what you want in that moment and it's perfectly targeted for you. Right. And like that's an interesting thought experiment because that sounds an awful lot like you know, you're you're getting this inescapable uh position of being like constantly entertained right it sounds a lot like uh almost a form of addiction you could find yourself in where you like literally wouldn't be able to get out of your chair if it was that compelling right right um, and there's a yeah it's like a, it's just a question of like how compelling can this stuff really get and is the end game for a recommendation or curation task to get so good at recommending that it it becomes your new priority it takes over your life you get addicted to it and it's something like you know, like we've talked in the past about the um, uh, the endlessly entertaining entertainment in that David Foster Wallace book, uh, Infinite Jest. Right. So uh, you could turn away from the video in that book, but no one does. They sit there until they die. So it's sort of the same thing. Like this could show you an interesting movie. I mean, we already talked about there's years and years and years worth of movies in the world. If you could somehow match up to just the ones you want to see in just the sequence you want to see them... You know, imagine the world's greatest DJ mashed up with uh, all these, you know, recommendation algorithms we've talked about, strategies. You could get caught in a flow that's just endlessly, moment to moment, more entertaining than the next. 
um, and it could be potentially damaging to your ability to, you know, like lead a normal life. Right, or at least a balanced life, right? Right. Yeah, and I think uh, where this gets really dark, too, is if, if they're not just showing you content, they're, you know, selling you products. Um, right, well, I mean, if, yeah, if, Amazon, if Amazon gets yeah, this, right. Yeah, if, they're, if they can get, especially if they can, you know, get their costs low enough, and, and man, they can sell stuff pretty cheap these days, and, like, you know, especially if we talk about, you know, self-driving cars and other ways of, like, bringing the cost down, if they're just, like, able to sell you products you know, at a lower and lower price and they're able to constantly figure out the ones that you want. I mean, I could see some, you know, weak-willed and eventually even some strong-willed consumers just like spending themselves into a huge amount of debt in a short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, I'm like a real frugal person and it kind of pains me to spend money generally. So I tend to do it like only when I need it. But every once in a while, you do see like exactly what you want at the price you are willing to pay for it, you know? And when that happens, I do make uh, a purchase and I could imagine <laughs> Amazon with all the stuff they sell, they wouldn't need to even have any more stock probably than they currently have. But if they could just show it to me at exactly the right time, they could probably double the amount of stuff I buy. Right. And exactly the right price point too. Right. Like, yeah. Right. And, and they could dynamically adjust that to like what they've figured out is the price point I'm going to pay for it. You exactly. Know? Which yeah. can sometimes mean marketing it, it, marking it up, right? If they know that yeah. if you're the kind of person that's like, this is worth this much to you and like, and they show it to you at that moment, like, I mean, that, this could really extract a lot of money out of right. people's pockets. Right. It could pockets. be maximally efficient because it'll be like what you really would pay for it. You know? I mean, I've definitely had some like late night Amazon, like book shopping sprees <laughs> where I've had like half a glass of wine and I bought like five books and like, you know... It's fine. They're just books. I'm not going right. to like, you know, spend myself into debt buying books, but it is like, yeah, maybe I read two out of the five. And like, so, you know, I, I do think it's like, it's definitely pretty easy even now to be, you know, I mean, tricked into spending. Sure. Stuff. And it feels very different than going to the store because it is like literally just like a clicking, you know? Sure. And we know this is possible because some people like have, you know, a devastating reaction to like QVC, you know? I mean, like, sure. That's not entertaining enough for me to want to watch or buy the things that they put on QVC. But I understand that that's past some people's threshold or they wouldn't make all the money they make over there. And I feel like this stuff could get a lot better than QVC is. You know, you could imagine that level of production quality with a much better curation of actual items and prices, as well as like, you know, personalizing it individually so that it's exactly in the right order to keep you interested and monitoring your brainwaves to make sure that like, if you're getting bored, they switch to selling you something else. And God, I mean, there's so much that they could potentially do if they have the data. Um, so this does seem like a thing where, you know, society's planners or whatever you want to call them, the people who are doing the selling in this world uh, could potentially have devastating influence over people. It could turn marketing into a, you know, an inescapable casino that we're always all in. Yeah, I mean, the thing it starts to resemble in my head is the in-app purchases and some of those games that are right. highly addictive that sell you tons of little, like, you know, virtual merit badges and, and right. like, the ways to deck out your avatar. Well, and they, like, hide from you when you're paying the in-app currency, the coins you pick up while you're running around or whatever, and when you're paying actual dollars through, you know, your parents' credit card. <laughs> and then uh, kids, I think, uh, I just saw a big resolution of a lawsuit i forget whether it was google or apple one of the big uh app store companies is going to facilitate a huge refund of like 
inadvertent purchases, in-app purchases that made by children on their parents' accounts. Oh, we're going to see a lot more you know? of that. We're going to see this with like with older people too. Yeah, like, where you just either don't realize it or you regret it afterward or you feel ripped off. And there's But I think specifically even of... elderly people that maybe like don't oh, yeah. like like fully un- understand what they're paying for. I mean, it's elderly people and kids, these are the people you prey upon and right. like you have a direct line to them now through the computer yes. that maybe you didn't have before. Yeah, yeah. It's true. It's a, you know, in general, computers are a vector for for scams of all kinds, and this is a, you know, a kind of a scam, I guess. I mean, the, the thing is that if it's if it's dressed up a certain way, it's not even a scam. It just seems like you know, right? All capitalism depen- as usual. Right. It all depends on how you how you present it and how duplicitous it is, and but how we, easy. Yeah, to understand. we might need some more consumer protections if this gets bad. Right. Or you know, if Google and Apple are held accountable, as it looks like might happen, then maybe they'll put in the protections. You know, use their market power to put in the protections. Uh, voluntarily, sure. which might work also if, as long as they feel under the gun enough that they're going to be held responsible for it. Exactly. I would trust Google and Apple as much as a, a federal regulator to uh, make sure that like, what's in their app store isn't going to give them trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's uh, I think all we have to talk about today. Yeah. So. I think that really covers this topic. We did a little bit of a loose talk about it, but it's a pretty exciting, interesting thing to think about. Um, and I think it is an ongoing problem that could use some new technological solutions. So if you're out there trying to like start a company or something, this is a space to get into. Yeah, connect people to the stuff they want that they don't even know exists. I mean, that's always good money if you can pull it that's off. That's good money if you can figure it out. Yeah, so um, it's good to be back. Uh, we hope to be doing regular podcasts again now that we're uh, after our break. Thanks and for not deleting us from your feed or unsubscribing. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you did unsubscribe, thanks for resubscribing, I guess. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, we're back. This is still a typical format uh, that we're doing right now, but we are still working on some some changes. Yeah, we're going to be experimenting with some new formats uh, coming up soon, uh, so stay tuned for that, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.